He is risen. risen Hey, good morning, everybody. This morning, our reading is going to be coming from Luke 24, 13 through 35. Would y'all stand with me as we uh, read the word of the Lord? That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you, only, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there and in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was one of the redeemed, the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were, who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if they were going, as he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening. He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us to the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how it was known to them the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. He is risen. He is risen My name is uh, Chris Miller. I'm one of the pastors here at Remedy Church. Um, so as you heard, PD read from Luke 24. So if you want to open up your Bibles to Luke 24, we're going to be looking at verses 13 uh, through 35 um, this Easter morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so Jesus to be able to gather here today in the name of the Lord Jesus, knowing that he is alive forevermore, that our hope and our trust and all of our love is found in him, and he is alive evermore. We pray that you would just warm our hearts today with love for Christ and love for one another. We pray that you would Uh, like these disciples on the road to Emmaus, that you would 
cause our eyes to recognize him and to know that he is alive evermore. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So history is full of really important conversations that seemingly changed the world, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, maybe not at all. A um, couple examples that I think of. J.R. Tolkien has a, a, a conversation with C.S. Lewis that causes Lewis to all of a sudden consider theism and eventually to consider Christianity. And then later on, Lewis goes on to write some of the most influential Christian works in the English language, um, in it, you know, in, at least from my vantage point. Another conversation, the two great reformers, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, they come together to try to see, can the Zwinglian movement and the Lutheran movement join forces? They have a conversation called the Marburg Colloquy, and they decide, well, we disagree over the Lord's Supper, so no, we cannot unite forces. That changed history. Um, another example would be the First Ecumenical Council of Nicaea, where the church defended scripture against Arius' claims that Jesus is a creature and not God. Another example, Neil Armstrong's conversation with Houston Mission Control that seemed to change the world. And then another one, which is a joke, would be that guy that convinced Sir Isaac Newton to have tea under the apple tree instead of in the lunchroom. That's a joke because that didn't really happen. The list could go on and on, but the conversations that I think are most impactful to all of history are the conversations that Jesus has with disciples after he's resurrected from the grave on the third day. And scripture gives us a couple of these conversations. Um, it tells us that Jesus appeared more uh, to more than 500 brothers at once in between his 40 days of resurrection and ascension to the Father at the right hand of the Father. And so we have the pleasure today of looking and seeing one of these conversations recorded for us in the Bible. In today's text, we'll join in this conversation between two disciples, one of them named Cleopas and the other unnamed, and Jesus on the third day itself, right after he rose from the dead. In our text self, we'll witness me in conversation by none other than Jesus himself, will witness his post-resurrection correction, comforting, and shepherding of his disciples. The word of God himself will guide us with his words through the hopeless sadness of his crucifixion, through the swamps of doubt regarding his resurrection, into the faithful plains of scriptural fortitude, and finally to the mountain table of recognition. Jesus will take us to these things. Hope by Christ, a hope that goes into the bottomless pit of death itself and returns to life eternal. A hope that transcends the monotony and temporariness that we see in life and gives us a hope that's everlasting, that takes us to the very throne of God as sons and daughters of God the Father. So we'll be called to confess today and respond to the testimonies to proclaim that the Lord is risen. And we'll be called to confess in faith with the early disciples of Luke 24, 34. The Lord has risen indeed. He is risen. 
So let's eavesdrop into this conversation. We're not really eavesdropping. Verse 14 through 17 introduces us to this earth-shattering conversation. We find two unnamed disciples traveling to a village called Emmaus. Uh, It was at least called that in the first century. They're traveling from Jerusalem. It's about seven miles to Emmaus. They're leaving Jerusalem from the Passover feast to return back to their hometown, which is likely why they were in Jerusalem in the first place. Verse 14 says this, And they were talking with each other about all these things things that had happened. Now the text draws our attention to the word they. They shows up as a pronoun, but in the Greek it also shows up as the subject of the verb talking, and so it shows up twice. And that's the way of Greeks basically all capsing the word they. And so it's really drawing our attention to these two disciples and what they are talking about. Verse 15 then gives us more about the conversation And it it adds kind of a mystery to it. It says, while they were talking and discussing, which is reasoning in the Greek, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. This idea of talking and discussing it, it, it puts a picture in our brain of quite literally back and forth conversation, almost like a debate, an argument even. There seems to be a disagreement going on between these two. And then the text states, Jesus himself, Jesus himself drew near and went to them. Um, Again, I mentioned they're leaving the Passover feast. The Passover feast is one of the Jewish feasts where all Jewish men who are able are supposed to travel to Jerusalem. And so it is not... um, It's not weird that when they're traveling back from that, that other Jews would be like, hey, can we join you? That's not a strange thing in their um, culture. It would just have been seen, oh, there's another Passover uh, uh, celebrate, celebrant, celebrant, person who celebrates, yeah, that, Um, coming back from Jerusalem, and he's joining these two disciples. But then comes the heartbreaking verse 16. Here the resurrected Christ is walking with two of his disciples, and verse 16 says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is extremely important. Look at the word were, and then see that it's added to the word kept. Were kept. This is the passive voice. It means that kept was something that was happening to them not happening by them. Kept was something happening to them, not by them. An outside force was keeping these disciples' eyes from recognizing Jesus. In the Greek, it literally reads, their eyes were held from recognizing him. Ironically, the only time Luke uses elsewhere in Luke the word kept is found in Luke 8.54, and it's when Jesus held the hand of a little girl that he then raises from the dead. And so you can kind of appreciate the irony here that Jesus holds this little girl's hand and she experiences the resurrection life. And here someone is holding their eyes back from seeing the resurrection life. And finds readers that recognition of Jesus and confession of him as Christ and Lord are not matters of human insight, but of divine enablement 
of divine revelation. Their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. So what does Jesus do after joining these two disciples, debating about all these things? In verse 17, it says that Jesus enters the chat, as the kids might say. He brings himself into their conversation, into their talking and reasoning, and it says this. He said, and they come, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. So Jesus asked them, what is this conversation? Jesus knows what the conversation is. He knows it better than they do. So note, why is he asking this question? He's asking this question for their benefit. He's asking this question that they might process what they're going through, their sadness. Our good shepherd enters their sadness for the sake of helping them process it and for the sake of restoring their faith. And the question seems to cut them to the heart because it says, and they stood still looking sad. That phrase is just a mere three words in the Greek. It conjures up the the picture in our imagination of a group of people walking and talking. They're all in step, and they're all just walking to a, a destination. Someone says something that's so shocking that the other two people just stop dead in their tracks. They just stop. They're no longer walking. They don't even open their mouths, but a deep, gloomy sadness speaks more effectively than a thousand words. And this is where we pick up the first stage of this world-changing conversation. We enter into the hopeless sadness of the crucifixion. And so that's kind of our first point, conversing about the saddening things of the crucifixion. Luke writes in verse 18, Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days, end quote. So Cleopas seemingly is lashing out. Maybe it's impatience. Maybe it's kind of like just dumbfoundedness. It could be a little bit of anger. He lashes out in his shock, right? Sadness can cause us to do foolish things. And the picture is absurd when you really see it from all the pieces, from our vantage point. Here, two disciples are sad because Jesus is dead. Jesus now joins them, asks them a question, and they return with kind of biting surprise. Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? So that, the irony, right? The, hey, God, incarnate, who is now standing alive before him that doesn't know what happened here, was your head in the sand? Were you living under a rock? That's the, that's the weight of what they're saying here. Are you ignorant? Verse 16, though, it just reminds us of verse 16. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So how does our resurrected Lord react to such insult, surprise, shock, impatience, anger? Does he zap them out of existence? He has power to do that. Uh, does, he, does his anger rise and flow out of him in maddening rage? Does he leave them? Does he just say, okay, I'm, I'm done talking with you? No. He patiently asks them another question. Not for his sake, but for their sake. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, what things? What things? 
He returns basically to his first question. He wants to know what they're talking back and forth about. He wants them to process out loud their sadness, their arguments, their doubts, whatever it is that they're discussing on this road to Emmaus. Now, um, when I titled this sermon, From Things to Christ or From Things to Resurrected Christ, my wife kind of replied to her tongue-in-cheek, uh, I must obey the text. That didn't go over well. Uh, it, so let me point something out here. The word things is important. Logic, it's a very bad word, but things. It might be the most repeated word in our text today. You'll find it in verse 14, all these things. You'll find it again in 18, the things that have happened. Here it is again in 19, what things. Look forward to it again in verse 21. These things happened. It actually shows up twice in 21 in Greek. And then again in 26, these things. And then finally in 27, the things concerning himself. So if you're counting, that's six times in English, seven times in Greek. These things seem to be of the uttermost importance to these disciples And also, Jesus agrees with them. He wants to hear about these things. And so, uh, the two disciples answer Jesus' second question in great detail in verses 19 through 21. They said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in word, or sorry, in deed and in word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened, end quote. So what were these things that saddened the disciples? What were they talking about back and forth? They were uh, some of the things of Christ, some of the facts concerning Jesus of Nazareth. They were uh, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. Now, this is pretty high appraisal of a person. He's a mighty prophet. He's done great deeds. He spoke great words before God and before people. It's not wrong. Is he a prophet? Yes. Was he mighty indeed in word before God and people? Yes. Is that it? Well, from their vantage point of the cross, they would answer, yes, that's it. But why? Well, he was condemned to death and crucified by the chief priests and the rulers when they delivered him up to Pontius Pilate. You see, he's just a prophet to them because he's dead according to their things concerning him. He cannot be the Savior, the Messiah, the promised one to come Because he is dead. You know what all prophets eventually do? They die. So they continue in heartbreaking fashion. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. We hoped. We had hoped. Nothing kills hope faster than death. These disciples' story seemed to stop there. Their conversation seems to be at a hinge point. It was a door that they did not want to walk through. It's like reciting the church's creed, the apostles' creed, and stopping short in the most inconvenient place. 
We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Amen. That's where they had stopped. He's just a prophet at that point. He's dead. Nothing gets us out of bed quicker than a faith that ends in death, right? They stood still, looking sad. So verse 17 said, Their faith, it was murdered on the cross. But they're talking and reasoning with another. So what are they talking and reasoning about? Back and forth about. We, we get a hint. It is now the third day. You see, Jesus had told his disciples throughout his ministry that he was going to die and that on the third day he was going to resurrect from the dead. So it's perhaps Luke hinting at that, letting us know, oh, there's a debate going on about the certain third day prophecies that Jesus himself had made. And so now it's from hopeless sadness of the crucifixion into the now the swamps of doubt regarding Jesus's resurrection. And so our second point is this, doubting the witnessed things of resurrection. And this comes from verses 22 through 24. So they continue telling Jesus these things. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see, end quote. And so now we're from the crucifixion things to the resurrection things, the witness of these women, the witness of the empty grave, and even the witness of the angels through these uh, women. So there's a, a Christian philosopher named William Lane Craig. Um, he debates many philosophers of various religious sects and, and different things like that, atheists, Muslims, etc. Now, one of his kind of, he usually does the existence of God, and then another one that he does is the resurrection of Christ. I would recommend to you looking kind of into some of his arguments for the resurrection, but it really gives a good summary of the kind of resurrection things that we have here. The argument's pretty simple, and it hinges around really three main facts. The fact, the first fact is this. We have good historical grounds to believe that the tomb of Christ was empty on the third day. How is that? Well, we have several witnesses all throughout Scripture from various people, the women, some of the apostles that went and checked up. But then the other thing is the more obvious example. If the tomb wasn't open, or sorry, if the tomb wasn't empty, there would be no debate. Nobody would be talking about the resurrection of Christ because people would just be like, there's his body. What do you want to talk about? So the, the, the first fact, right, is that the tomb is empty. The second fact is we have various witness accounts of people who Jesus appeared to them and in this case, even spoke to them. One account, again, 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus appeared to 500 brothers at the same time, which I think safely rules out hallucinations. Um, 500 people don't normally hallucinate the same exact hallucination. That would be a little strange. This, the third fact is this, and this is the origin of the faith of the disciples and the growth of the early church. Remember verse 17, they stood still looking sad. 
that is what you would expect from a group of people who say you find them preaching a resurrected Christ and a church growing and flourishing in the midst of persecution and opposition. So these three facts, I think, give us a really good um, reason. I think the best explanation of it is that Jesus Christ resurrected from the grave on the third day. So Craig gives these kind of facts. Now, what's interesting to our text, the fact and the second fact, or kind of a, an alleviation of it, um, had already been presented to these two, two disciples, and yet their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So here, here's the point. These, testimonies, these disciples had heard the testimony of the women and the angels and from Peter that there's no body in the tomb. So they had that one, empty tomb. They didn't quite have two, but they had something quite like two. So Jesus hadn't appeared to them yet, even though he kind of had in our text. But the angels appeared to them and said, he's alive. So they had that. So they had these two facts. But these two facts did not cause them to believe in the resurrection. Reason doesn't create faith. Faith seeks reason, right? That's an early church kind of idiom. They were doubting the testimony of the women and thus the testimony of the angels as well. These facts were not enough. It's at this juncture that Jesus in our text then says it's time to speak into this conversation, to add some things to their account. And so now he's going to take them to the faithful planes of Scripture. And so our third point comes from 25 and 27. Their hearts aflame by the things of Jesus from Scripture. Jesus responds to their account of crucifixion and doubting the resurrection. And he says this. He said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, end quote. So here, the gentle and lowly Jesus decides it's time for a rebuke, a correction. He rebukes his disciples. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, it's important to understand Jesus' rebuke here. He does not rebuke these two disciples for disbelieving the implication of the empty tomb. He does not rebuke them for disbelieving the testimony of the women regarding the angels declaring Jesus alive. He's not even rebuking them for not recognizing him. He's rebuking them for their slowness of heart to believe what the Bible has always taught concerning the Messiah, concerning Jesus. They were hardened to the truthfulness of the scriptures and thus were hardened to the very witness of God himself concerning his son, Jesus the Christ. So Jesus then follows this rebuke with a kind of rhetorical question. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Were not the things of the resurrection and the things of the crucifixion necessary Things were not they foretold in the scriptures by the prophets. And so now they talked about these things, and now Jesus wants to also talk about these things. And so it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, uh, in all the scriptures, the things concerning 
himself. So I want to point out two quick observations before we actually look at some of the scriptures that Jesus likely shared with his disciples. First observation is found here, Moses and all the prophets. You can look in Luke 24, scroll down to verse 44, and you'll see an iteration where Jesus is doing the same thing with another group of disciples. And it says this uh, in verse 44, Jesus tells the other disciples, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Testament is it's the law of Moses. All of the Old Testament is about me. The Hebrew Old Testament is broken into three parts. It's the law of Moses, which is the first five books. It's the prophets, which is a lot of books. And then it's the Psalms, which is the third section. Now, the reason it's called the Psalms is because it begins with the Psalms. So this is just a shorthand way of saying that all of the Old Testament is about Jesus, and he is interpreting those things to him. It is, as Charles Spurgeon once famously said, whenever I get a hold of a text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus Christ, and I mean to keep on his track till I get to him. These disciples had gotten off track, and here now Jesus comes to them and is showing them the way back to himself through the roads of Scripture. Our second observation here before we actually look at some of the scripture, um, this is uh, this idea of um, scripture being super important here is is confirmed in another way in our text. Um, This is from really G.K. Beale is the one that words onto this. There is heavy usage of words all throughout the text that are words that are normally reserved for reading and understanding the Bible. So when they're used elsewhere in the New Testament, it's usually for reading and understanding the Bible. So I'll give a a couple of examples. Look at verse 14 and 15. When you see the word talking, that's where we get the word homily from, which is, again, a kind of sermon. Verse 15, the word recognized is an interpretive word. Verse 27 literally uses the word interpreted. And finally, in verse 31 and 32, the word opened. All of those are oftentimes used in scripture of God or the disciples or somewhat the church interpreting scripture. And so scripture is heavily infused throughout it. This idea of we need to understand scripture in order to to know Christ. So the effect of Christ's teaching from the Old Testament is seen in verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us? The scripture. Their hearts began to burn with faith again, and like a word on the tip of their tongue or a feeling of deja vu, or when you see a face and you, you can't quite say the name, they are now brought to the precipice of recognizing the resurrected Jesus, but they're not quite there yet. So what scriptures did Jesus discuss? We don't know, but we have a very, 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 very strong good, and educated guess. The New Testament, in two ways, shows us this. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find Jesus using Old Testament scripture and applying it to himself. So that's one way. If you read Acts through Revelation, all the letters of the church, you'll find the disciples using Old Testament passages and applying it to Jesus. This shows us they're taking what Jesus is teaching them here, right, and they're applying it. So anytime the New Testament uses an Old Testament passage about Jesus and applies it to him, 
it's good, it's a, it's a good bank that they were taught that by none other than Jesus himself. And so let me give just two examples uh, from Scripture that our hearts, too, might burn within us as we seek to track Christ down uh, these roads of the Bible. So the first one is Psalm 22. And uh, if you want to flip to it, um, Psalm 22, Psalm 22. This is a, a Psalm of David, means it was written about a thousand years before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' birth, life and death and resurrection. The this Psalm is quoted by Christ on the cross, and it contains some very specific prophecies that take place during his suffering and his death. So Psalm 22. So Psalm 22, 1 reads like this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus literally quotes that while on the cross, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look down at verse 7 and 8 of Psalm 22. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights. Who quite literally are described in the gospel accounts at wa as wagging their heads uh, against Jesus as he's being crucified. And obviously they're saying, well, save yourself. You know, call out to God. He can save you. Um, all those things. Look at verses 14 and 15 in Psalm 22. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried, dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, end quote. This is a good description of agony and suffering and even dehydration or thirst of Christ on the cross. Look at verse 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. End quote. Again, describing the mockery of Jesus by his enemies. Describing Jesus' hands and feet being pierced. And then finally, we have a description of the Roman soldiers quite literally gambling to win some of Jesus' clothing that was actually worth value, all of which are found in the gospel accounts of Jesus. And again, I want to remind you, this was written a thousand years or so before these things took place. And so you can kind of see why are their hearts burning within us? Because Jesus is now looking at scripture and leading them to himself through it. Let's look at a resurrection one. Flip back a few pages, Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Again, a Psalm of David written about a thousand years before. Um, Peter, in the first sermon after the Holy Spirit fills the apostles at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, in his first sermon, he cites Psalm 16 as a defense for the resurrection. Um, verses 8 through 11, I'll just read them. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. End quote. And so in regards to the verse, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter proclaims, likely again echoing Jesus' teaching in Acts 2, he says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He is risen. So after opening the scriptures to them, it might seem that this conversation is, is over. I mean, it seems pretty clear. Like, Jesus just dropped the mic. Should be enough. Able of recognition, and this is our fourth and final point. Recognizing the Jesus of sacrament. And this is verses 28 through 31 and also 35. Um, Luke, uh, the conversation seems to be over, but Jesus has one more thing to do. He doesn't say anything, or at least it's not recorded what he said. He only does some things. And so verse 28 through 31 says this. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went, to st he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. End quote. So it's, it's nighttime. They're, they're at their village. It's impolite to say, hey, I want to stay at your house tonight. Is that okay? So Jesus kind of does the polite thing, the, the hospitable thing that any Jew would do. He acts like he's going to go further down the road. And they did the hospitable thing that any Jew would do by inviting him to stay because it's not safe to travel alone at night on a road by yourself. Um, so they invite him to stay, um, and, they, uh, and he does. He, he, and as they're settling down in their home, it seems to be, right, it's dinner time. And at the, the peak here of this text, Jesus no longer plays the role of guest, but he takes the role of host by taking the bread himself, giving thanks, blessing it, and breaking it, and serving it. And verse 31 records the mountaintop joyful end to this conversation journey. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. No longer do we find the things of crucifixion and the things of resurrection witness, or even the things concerning Jesus found in Scripture, but rather we find Christ himself. No longer do we find things and facts to assent to, but rather the living and breathing person of Jesus Christ to believe in and to submit to. Jesus takes them from things to himself. And where did this conversation lead them? And where is it leading us? To bread. Was this the Lord's Supper, Volume 2? No. 
It wasn't. It doesn't seem to because it didn't mention wine. didn't mention any of these things. However, that this meal was a sign that pointed them to the Lord's Supper and reminded them of the Lord's Supper, we must absolutely say yes. It does that. How can we say that? Two reasons. First, the similarity to this account and the Lord's Supper is absolutely uncanny. And then second, we see the same kind of relationship between taking the Lord's Supper as a church gathering and sharing meals with one another and, and other believers in our homes. We see that relationship all throughout Luke and Acts. So much so that Acts 2.42 says this, that the early Christians dedicated themselves to apostolic teaching, fellowship, prayers, and to the breaking of bread. And anytime you study that breaking of bread, you'll find commentators go like this. It's not the Lord's Supper, but it is the Lord's Supper. They're breaking bread in their homes, like just sharing meals with one another, but it's also referring to when they gather together and they break bread and they um, celebrate the Lord's Supper with one another. So how is this uncanny in its description or comparison to the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper account is uh, Luke 22, 14 through uh, 23, I believe. Um, and let me just list off some similarities and differences. At table, found here, is a little bit different. They reclined at a table. Having taken the bread is word for word with Luke twenty-two nineteen, the Lord's Supper account. He blessed it here is different from he gave thanks in the Lord's Supper, but again, carries with it very much a similar meaning. Having broken is almost word for word with he broke it from the Lord's Supper. He gave is a different word for gave in the Lord's Supper, but it means the same exact thing. And then finally, to them is identical with the Lord's Supper um, and here. So Jesus offers himself to us in the believer's meal, the Lord's Supper. And we remember this by not only participating in this meal when the church gathers, but we also remember this anytime when we eat, give thanks before you eat. Probably why it's a common custom to pray before you eat, to give thanks before you eat, because Jesus did. So let's recap, let's conclude. Jesus enters this conversation with his two disciples whose faith had died with them on the cross. After processing the facts of his death with them and the prospect of his resurrection with them, he does two things to quicken their faith. First, he shares himself from the scriptures, the Old Testament. And then second, he reveals himself in the breaking of bread. James Edwards, a uh, commentator on uh, the Gospel of Luke, writes this concerning these two actions. The revelatory effect of the meal at Emmaus, following immediately on in the interpretive teaching of Jesus that all the scriptures anticipate his person and ministry, foreshadows the ministries of the word and sacrament. Eyes are open to recognize Jesus as Lord as he breaks bread and as he interprets the scriptures to them. So where does this leave us, dear believers, on this Resurrection Sunday? That we might continue to strive to sit under the ministry of the word and the ministry of the sacrament, the Lord's Supper and baptism. That we would continue to strive to allow Jesus to be recognized by us in word and in the bread and the wine. 
For it is here in his heard word, Christ preached from the scriptures, and in his visible word, Christ recognized in the breaking of bread and drinking of wine that we too are brought from facts, from things, to Christ himself. It is here where we too might proclaim with these disciples in verse 34, the Lord has risen indeed. Now, if you're here today and you find yourself in a position of these early two disciples of Emmaus, maybe hearts full of sadness, unbelief, maybe even anger, maybe uh, you find yourself estimating Christ as merely a prophet, or maybe he's just um, a good teacher, or maybe you don't even know what Christ is to you. I would recommend two action steps to you from this text. First, continue attending Remedy Church or a Bible preaching church. Why? So that you might hear Christ proclaimed from the scriptures. And second, that you might be able to see the church take the Lord's Supper each and every week and see that witness. The second action step is this. Invite Christians into your life to read the scriptures with you. Invite one of your friends who's a Christian to go through one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just read it and talk about Jesus. And maybe you too will find your heart of flames. Maybe you too will find that Jesus died on that cross for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you too will find that Jesus resurrected from the grave to bring you life. Maybe you too will find faith in Jesus. Let me conclude with how this text concludes. Verses 32 through 35. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the of the bread. He is risen. Let's pray. Father, we are again thankful uh, to think that we have a, a, that your son, who is God, became a man and lived amongst us, took our punishment on the cross, sat in the grave, and on the third day rose from the dead offering life to us. And that more than all of that humility and that love that he demonstrates and all that, even then, he still continues to come to us, to conversate with us, to enter into our own words and our own thoughts, our own doubts, our own fears, our own experiences, and leads us back to himself. God, we are thankful that you've given to us your son, We just ask today um, and tomorrow and every day that you would continue to cause us to recognize Jesus in the scriptures and our shared meals with one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm going to invite the band to come on up um, and to lead us into singing uh, to Jesus.